Father God, we want to right now turn the corner on our worship and combine what we just sang about, the idea that you are a conqueror, that you give us power, that you give us love, grace, hope, all the riches that we have in Christ. We want to combine that now with our look at this idea of single parenting as we continue on in this look at grace and the family. God, we've looked at your design for the family. We've looked at marriage, what happens when a marriage falls apart. And now we, Lord, want to look at this idea of single parenting. Next week, we're going to look at parenting and then grandparenting. God, we're trying to look at all the different angles of our modern-day family and ask what you would have to say about it through your word. So I pray that as we take a look at one particular story here this morning, that, God, you might give amazing hope and encouragement to the single parents among us, that, God, may they not walk out of here without knowing that your grace and your goodness is available and even upon them. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that God, as we ask ourselves, what, what are we doing? What are we doing about this whole idea of single parenting and how are we encouraging and being places, places of grace ourselves for single parents that God, you might not let us escape the truth and the call of your word. God, I thank you that you love us, that there's not one person here today that's beyond the scope of your grace. Speak to our hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we all say together, amen. amen. So let me ask you, what if Mickey, Philomena, Janice, Anne, Kristen, Sylvia, Dave, Christine, Roger, Fran, and Marie all have in common? You guessed it. They were single parents, actually single parents. And my first pastor in Detroit, when I was there for nine years as an associate pastor, that taught me volumes about what it means to be a single parent. But not just a single parent in today's culture that survives, but a single parent that thrives. These are people that I've known over the years, just in my first pastor alone, that journeyed with me as a young pastor and helped me understand the complexities and the difficulties of single parenting, but then even more so what God says to single parents and how he is for them and wants to encourage them in the circumstances that they are in. Folks, that's where we're going here this, this morning. Is it morning still or afternoon? I don't know. But whatever it is, that's where we're going here today, looking at the idea of single parenting in our culture today and what God's Word has to say about it. Clearly, folks, the most largest and most dramatic change to the landscape of the family in the 20th and now the 21st century, without a doubt, has been the rise of the single-parent family. It's true. Every cultural indicator shows this. Every expert on the family confirms this, that the single parent rise of the single parent family is something nobody saw coming, nobody expected it, and it's been the most dramatic change in the family in the history of our recording of the family. And so check this out if you're not convinced. In the United States alone, out of almost 39 million families with children under age 18, more than 32% of them, that's 12.4 million families, are headed by either a mom alone or a dad alone. To put that in perspective, in 1970, the number of single mothers in our country was about 3 million. Today, just 40 years later, it's a staggering 10 million single moms, a 300% increase in just one generation. Nobody saw that coming. Single father households have been on the rise, almost rarely seen in our parents' and our grandparents' generation. Single fathers now who are parenting their own children are about 2 million in our nation. Again, a staggering increase from what it was before. And as we all know, when one goes it alone as a parent, there are a whole host of difficulties that would not be there if there were two parents. It's a much more difficult road. 
Economically, it's more difficult. In fact, every study shows that an average single parent will live on just about half of what a two-parent home lives on. It's a tougher road financially. Emotionally and psychologically, the kids and adults have been shown to have more struggles than if they were raised in a dual-parent home. Relationally, most single parents are healing from things that occurred that have caused them to be single now. And probably for my sake, most importantly, spiritually, many single parents ask questions like this. Why, God? What happened to my dreams? What happened to my hopes? Where are you in the midst of all of this? I mean, truly, it's a whole different world. It's a whole different scenario from when you go from two parents to a single parent for everybody involved. And yet, thankfully, like so many other areas of life, the Bible has something helpful, instructive, and even encouraging and challenging to say to both single parents as well as to you and me when it comes to this idea of single parents. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Bible has 96 different passages addressing the idea of widows and widowers who were the primary single parents in biblical times. As well, the Bible has some 39 passages that are encouragement to the fatherless and thousands of passages in which God talks about himself being our father, protector, and provider. So certainly the Bible is not silent on this idea of single parenting. And so as I said in my prayer, what I want to do here this morning is I want to share with you guys in 1110, you guys over in the high school room, one passage. Just one passage. This is Scottsdale Bible Church, so we're going to take a look at one passage and park in front of it, and we're going to kind of parse out in a deeper way what this passage has to say to us about single parents and then also us as the church in rallying around single parents. And it's found in a place that most of you would not have guessed. If you brought a Bible, I want you to open up to the book of First Kings chapter 17. You're saying, what? First Kings. It's in the Old Testament, about a third or halfway through the Old Testament. If you grabbed a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 299. How easy is that? So turn to page 299, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. And it's a story, a true story from the Old Testament that I'm going to begin reading at verse 8. Now, before we read it for you, uh, let me give you the context here, because context is always important. It's a really tough time for Israel. They have really bad leadership. Dial into that. Ahab is king. Jezebel is queen. They're very immoral leaders. They're even very antagonistic to God. And the whole nation is caved into cultural sin around them. They're idolaters. They're involved in, in, in grotesque sexual sin. You can fill in the gaps. And as a result of this, God has ticked at Israel. And so he's caused a three-and-a-half-year famine and drought to occur upon the land. No rain and no food as a result of that. They're three-and-a-half years. And it's even affecting the neighboring nations around them. So it's a very difficult time for Israel. And yet, as always is the case in the Bible, there are a few men and women who have remained faithful and true to God. We call them the heroes. And most prominent at this time is a guy by the name of Elijah. Now, we don't know much about Elijah. We don't know about his history or his background. He just kind of appears on the scene. But you're going to learn some key things about him right now. So let's pick up on the action and read about Elijah and his interaction with this widow in 1 Kings 17, verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. 
And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, and go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Folks, I believe that this passage here communicates some powerful truths to two groups of people, to single parents among us today, as well as to the church, you and me today, those who claim to be followers of Christ, and it comes to this idea of single parenting. And so what I want to do is share with you a few truths, three in all, to each group here today. And I'm going to begin with single parents. I want us to dig deep in this passage and look at three key things that it's saying, first to single parents and then to the rest of us. So first, finding grace as a single parent. And before I give you these truths, one of the things that we all need to see going on in this passage, and maybe it's obvious, but I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here, is just to simply notice that this widow was a mess. Give me a head nod that we all understand that. I mean a real mess. She has no husband. He's dead. She is alone. She's poor as poor could be. She had most likely no inheritance because there's no mention of servants or help or outside resources. She's in a poor town called Zarephath. And Zarephath was a Phoenician town north of Israel, so she's a foreigner who's not even a, even a part of God's chosen nation, Israel. And to boot, she has a son who's most likely sickly because he eventually dies, and we don't find him even helping her find sticks for food when we first open this scene. And so just to really note that the author's making it very clear that this is not a pretty picture here, that it's not going well for her at all. And so when some of you heard me say earlier that there's grace to be found for the single parent in this passage, you got to be asking me, how? Like, what is it that you see, Jamie, in here that would say that there's grace for the single parent? And I'm glad you asked. Notice three things that this widow did in her interplay with Elijah and God that any single parent today can also do that will help them find grace. First is the call to seek God and rely on him. And I don't mean this tritely, I mean this deeply, to seek God and rely on Him. And to see this most clearly, what you need to recognize in this story is the fact that there were so little provisions or resources and yet so big a God. Just see that. 
So little provisions and resources for this widow, this single parent, and yet so big a God. I mean, as I said earlier, times were tough then. The nation was a mess. There was a severe drought and famine. And this woman was poor and depressed as poor and depressed can be. And yet I need you to also see that in this woman's honesty and in her trust in Elijah's words about God and even in God himself, she experiences his grace and provision to the nth degree. If you don't believe me, I want you to look at some of the particulars of this story. Look at verse 9. God is speaking to Elijah, and he says this in verse 9. He says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Don't miss that. God says, I commanded a widow to feed you. Did you catch that? I commanded a widow. So he's talking to this widow even before Elijah gets there, and she is listening, as we're going to see. Hang on to that. And then in verse 12, after Elijah asks for some food, the widow declares that she has none except for a little flour and a little oil, and that she's looking for some sticks to make a fire that they may eat it and then die, we assume die of starvation because it's a famine. And Elijah's response is very revealing. Look at verses 14 to 16. He says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now get this. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her, he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour is not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So God speaks to this woman and to Elijah separately. They meet. She doesn't know this guy from Adam, so she has to be trusting God that this is the one that God was talking about. Elijah then tells her what to do, and she further trusts in God through Elijah's words, and a provision of grace is provided by God. Don't miss this, folks. She heard God in verse 9. She experienced a provision for her in verses 14 to 16, all because she believed and trusted in the God of Elijah that he was pointing her toward. And as I mentioned earlier, what should really blow your minds about this is that this was not a Jewish woman. This was a woman who was north of Israel at that time in a pagan nation that had no religion at all similar to Judaism. It would be kind of like some New Age person from Sedona coming down here and all of a sudden saying, guess what? I believe in Jesus. Isn't this great? And you guys would be mildly shocked by something like that. And yet that's exactly what's going on here. Is that it, is it this woman who has no Israelite heritage, no history with Yahweh, says, I believe in God. And I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to rely on Him in the most dire circumstances of my life. You see, folks, the Bible teaches us that God, though the maker and sustainer of all people, actually has a special spot in his heart for single moms. The Bible tells us that he has a special spot in his heart for people who lack the normative resources that God made this earth with, the physically poor, the ones who have lost hope, the abused, the taken advantage of, the fatherless. In fact, look at Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5, if you don't believe me. It says, Sing to God, sing praises to Him. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. The name of the Lord, His name is the Lord, exalt before Him. Now here it is. Father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. And passages like these are all over the Bible. All over the Old Testament. They're all found in the Beatitudes. They're all found in the Epistles. That God has a special spot in His heart for those who have received a raw deal in this life. 
that his grace is reserved for those who are poor in spirit, who are struggling with their circumstances this side of heaven. And all he asks is that we seek him and rely on him that we might experience his help and provision. You know, I remember one of the first times that I saw this kind of faith in action. I was in my very first pastorate, very young. It was over 20 years ago. And there was a gal named Christine that joined Kim's and mine small group that we were involved in at that time. And Christine had had an abusive past. She married the wrong man. He was a criminal now in jail. They had two kids who weren't turning out all that well. She had made numerous wrong choices over the years. And yet in the midst of all of that, this gal had a deep and abiding faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, just an incredible hope and faith in God, even in the midst of not knowing where her next dollar would come from or what her son might do next or how the car would get fixed or what her irresponsible and reactionary ex-husband would do. I mean, she just maintained an incredible faith in God. In fact, this is a, a kind of funny story. It's a sad event, but a funny story. I, I forget one day she came into my office shortly after me moving to Detroit and her joining our small group. She came to me in the office and she said, something terrible happened yesterday. I said, what's up? And she said, well, you know, I clean houses in Gross Point, which was a neighboring suburb there, a more wealthy suburb. And she said, I was cleaning this one house, and after I got done cleaning it, I locked it because both the husband and wife work. And that night, my son took the key, went back to the house, and robbed it for money. And she said, and now the police are involved. I probably lost my entire home cleaning business. You know, it's just a veritable mess, not the least of which she's concerned about her son. And here I am, a young pastor, and I say, I don't know what to do with this God. And she looks at me, she says, so I think, pastor, we need to pray right now. Would you bow with me? <laughs> you guys all get this. I'm the one paid to pray, and she's the one who's saying, I think we need to pray right now. And I said, let's do it. And so we, we bowed there for about 20 minutes. She just led in prayer for her son and for this family and for God's glory and his goodness to be worked out in all of this. And I was in awe. And I thought to myself, I'm learning from this gal. What do you do? But when life is most difficult, you hit your knees, you take it to God. As we're going to see in a minute, you do a lot of other things too. But the reality is, is she taught me what it was like to seek and rely on God. She joined our small group, as I said, and, and Kim and I saw just provision after provision after provision of grace provided for this single mom in some of the most difficult circumstances because she sought God. That single parent, listen to me, the first thing, the guy wants you to know is that he loves you and that he has a special spot for you in his heart, his mind, his will. He wants to be the husband or wife that you don't have. He wants to be the mother and father that right now your kids might not have. So seek him and rely on him. That's the first thing he asks you to do. Now, as you imagine, there's more, a lot more that the story teaches us. And so here's the second thing about finding grace as a single parent. And some of you are going to accuse me of pop psychology here, but here, bear with me because this is found deeply in the scriptures. And it's simply this, that we need to practice, if you're a single parent, practice care of self and care of others. Believe it or not, this is exactly what the scriptures teach us in this passage here. Practice care of yourself and care of others as a way to receive God's grace in your time of need. And I'm not going to read it again because we've already read it twice and you should be familiar with it now. But I want to show you something very interesting and significant that's happening in this passage here. An interplay that occurs in the first five opening verses of this passage here. So look up here on the screen, 1110. Hopefully you can look up on your screen too. And I want to point out something in the text here. And I've done so through colors. So you'll notice that there's white, which is the main text. And then I put something in red and something in yellow. The red symbolizes or shows the self-care going on in this scene, and the yellow symbolizes other care. 
And you're going to see it happening twice in just five verses. So in the first verse there, it says that this widow was gathering sticks. Why was she gathering sticks? To make herself a meal. Do you see that? She's making herself a meal. Even in her dire circumstances with a son who is sick in the middle of a drought and a famine, she's gathering sticks. Self-care. And then Elijah comes along and says, would you give me some water in a vessel that I may drink? And without even blinking, she says, I'll do that for you. That's unusual. For somebody in the midst of caring for themselves to say, even in these difficult circumstances, I will now care for this person as well in my life, shows other care. Then give me another click here. As the text goes on, it shows again her self-care. She says, may I go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it. I didn't highlight and die because that's not very positive, but we all understand what's going on there. That she's saying we may eat it. She's still involved in self-care, but she's also thinking I'm getting to the end of my rope here. I'm tying a knot and hanging on. And then Elijah pushes her even further and says, okay, not just water, but how about sharing some of that food with me? And and she basically says, well, I don't think there's going to be enough. He says, trust me, trust God, there's going to be enough. And look at verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. Folks, what you need to see here, because I think it's very clear, is that this woman practiced both. She practiced care of self, care of others, and you got to believe that this not only contributed to her survival, but eventually to her attitude that would make her a woman of God in the Old Testament. This truth is so often missed when it comes to single parenting that one of the key ingredients to eventual success beyond just surviving is to learn self-care as well as care of others, no matter how bad it gets. Self-care is simply taking responsibility for and managing your own physical, spiritual, emotional, and relational life. As we're going to see, there's lots of help for being a single parent, but one of the first things I think God asks you to do is take responsibility for your lot in life and for your family now and provide self-care. You know, my friend Christine, when uh, the whole thing came down to Gross Point with her son robbing the house, that business obviously ended, and so now she needed to do something else. And what would have knocked many ladies down wasn't going to knock her down. And so she started. She thought that she wanted to start to make a pie business and sell pies to local restaurants. And Christine actually was a very good baker, and so we had tasted her pies. And so she made a pie and, and, and took it to Big Boy. Maybe you remember Big Boy back in the Midwest? Yeah, where all the spiritual things happened on the east side of Detroit, Big Boy. And, you know, they already had their own pies. I mean, it's a chain. So I'm saying to Christine, I don't think they're going to buy pies from you. So she comes to my office about a week later, and she goes, they want to buy five a day. How about that? I said, how did you get Big Boy to buy five pies a day? She said, all I had them do was taste them, and they're much better than their own pies. I thought, what an industrious woman, baking five pies a day and selling them to Big Boy so that she might continue to provide for her her children and her family. It was a great example of self-care. Christine then went on to pride for her own spiritual life. She joined a small group. She served in a church. She dealt with her own addictions through a recovery program. I was so impressed for this woman who was like the woman here in our story as she provided care of herself and her family, even in the midst of very little. And then notice that other care is involved in this. I'm not getting totally involved with self, which so many people can do, but learning to give back, that's part of receiving and giving grace as well. Again, it blew me the day away the day that Christine came into my office. She came into my office a lot, as you can tell. I was a young pastor with a lot of time and said to me one day, she said, I want to start baking pies for the church. I have some extra, and I want to start giving to the church for our leadership events. And I said, wow, 
You're going to give back to others as well. This widow gathered, this widow gathered her own stick. She made her own bread. She even shared it with a stranger, all in a hopeless situation anticipating imminent death. Don't tell me that we can't do the same today. Amen? Don't tell me that, that single parents today cannot also practice the pattern seen here with the widow of caring for self, caring for others, no matter how bad it gets. And then thirdly, this story teaches us one final key thing about finding grace as a single parent. And again, this one is so crucial, and that is to live one day at a time. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, single parent, hear this. Live one day at a time. Again, some of you are thinking, well, where'd you get that one, Dr. Phil? No, I didn't. I got that one right from the text here, and I want to show you how I got it because this is so incredibly cool. How many of you guys have ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Some of you have, maybe a hand raise. 1110, Charles Spurgeon. One of the greatest preachers of all time in the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Spurgeon lived back in the mid-1800s in England. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. And I read a sermon that he did on this exact text a few years ago. And I want to read for you a notation that he made or an observation that he made here, and you'll see this point. He says, For there was never more in the barrel than there was at the first. There was a handful at night and a handful the next morning, but there was never two handfuls there at a time. To the very last, there was nothing but just a little oil in the cruise. Whenever she looked at it, there was only a little glazing of oil to spread upon the cake. The cruise was never full. There was not a drop more in it than there was at first. So that this woman, the first time that she had eaten the meal out of the barrel, might have thought to herself, well, I've had a breakfast in the most extraordinary manner, but what am I going to find at noon? But when she went at noon, there was a handful more. Then she took out a handful and prepared her lunch, and unbelief would have whispered, but will there be any at evening? But then at evening, there was just enough for one more meal. Then look up here on the screen. He closed by saying the barrel was never filled, and yet it was never emptied. The store was little, but it was always sufficient for the day. Now do you see? Contained in this story, and I love how Spurgeon says it here, is the call, single parent, that if you have to, live one day, one moment at a time, and trust in God. The store was little, but it was always sufficient for the day. God did not allow this single parent to live two years in advance, not two months in advance, not two weeks in advance, not even two days in advance. She had to live one day at a time. The chaos demanded it. But also so did her trust in God. And the point is clear. That when the worries and struggles of life become overwhelming, when we can't see our way clear to the end, for any of us, let alone for single parents, we focus then on the moment, what's right in front of us, rather than worrying about the future, as Jesus said, and we trust in God's provision and His grace, but we only do it by living one day at a time. Truly, folks, the widow teaches us much about how to find grace. Seek and rely on God. Care for yourself and those around you. Live one day at a time. And as you do this, you will find his grace, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your circumstances. And now, clearly the story does not stop here. I thought about ending the message here and letting us go home a little bit early, but guess what? The story also speaks volumes through the other main character to the rest of us who might not be struggling with single parenting, but as we established earlier, are involved in many ways with single parents around us. So I want to spend the remaining 15 minutes we have just talking to the rest of us, the church, about how we give grace 
now to single parents around us. And this will be the most important thing for us in this message. And again, three things that Elijah did that made all the difference in his relationship with the single parent. And the first thing is this, don't judge. Could I be more clear? Don't judge. So check this out. Do you remember the point in the story where Elijah first meets this woman and he asks her for water and then for food and she tells him she has no food? Do you all remember that scene? And that she has just enough for one last meal before her and her son dies. I want you to look closely at Elijah's response in verse 13. This is very revealing. It says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. And some of you are thinking, big whip. I mean, that's just a normal everyday scene. How do you see grace in that? Here's the key. Elijah was a prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament spoke forcefully and candidly and, quite frankly, violently into people's lives. If you don't believe me, read on in chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21, and you're going to see a different Elijah. When he confronts Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, he's not gentle. He's not kind. He is out for blood, spiritual blood, and he goes for the spiritual jugular. And though that doesn't sound very pretty, that's what prophets did in dire times in the Old Testament. Read about it in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You'll see that these prophets, man, spoke outside of the church. They yelled into the church and said, wake up, repent. It was their nature. It was their role. And so once you get that and you realize that that's going to be Elijah's MO as he moves forward, you say, why doesn't he do that here then? I mean, with a tone of compassion and empathy, he instructs this woman what to do, namely to prepare the cake and water, and even instructs her to catch it to make sure that she has some for herself and her son. He could have told this woman to suck it up, to get some courage, to stop feeling sorry for herself, to obey the word of the Lord, and to stop whining, which is what he's going to say to, to, to people in future chapters. But he doesn't do that here. With this gal, it's a special case. It's totally non-judgmental. And some of you are saying right now, because you're tough nuts, you're saying, well, Jamie, you're reading too much into that. Got anything more? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I want you to look at another passage here that also should convince us that he was very non-judgmental here, and it's actually the turning point in the story. Remember when the son dies? And the son eventually dies, and the woman is obviously upset and distraught, and she's at the absolute end of her rope at this point. And look at what happens in verses 18 to 19. It says, and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to my remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. So the child dies. And interestingly, the woman who is distraught blames Elijah and in blaming Elijah, she thinks that maybe this has to do with her sin. Did you see that there in, in, in verse 18, her sin? Now, if somebody asked you, as somebody who's tracking with this message today, what is that sin that she is talking about? How would you respond to that? That's what I thought. That's how the commentators respond to it as well. I'm not kidding. The Bible experts, when you push back and say, what sin is she talking about? They give you that deer in the headlights look. They have no clue. They take a stab at it. They say, well, maybe she's upset about the national sin that Israel has at that time, and so she's kind of owning national sin like sometimes we do on the National Day of Prayer and things like that. Or maybe there's just some unknown, unspoken sin that's not mentioned in the text here that she's owning on a personal level that maybe even led to some of the circumstances she's in. But we don't know. 
It doesn't say. All we know is that she has real guilt, real sin in her life, and like many of you, she's thinking that maybe this calamity has come upon her because God is ticked, and now he's bringing this punishment upon her by taking her son. And what I find fascinating is that at this point, Elijah once again could have played the role of a prophet, and he could have said, yes, you have sinned. All people have. And your sin has found you out, sister, and the wages of sin is death, and you know it very well. He could have said that. You and I all know Christians say things like that today. And yet he doesn't say that. Not at all. He tenderly takes his son from, his, from her arms, carries her up to his own room, lays him on his own bed, and as we shall see, performs a miracle and brings him back to life, or God brings him back to life. I hope you're budging on this. Elijah had multiple opportunities to judge, to treat this woman as her attitude and even her own sin deserved, but he didn't. He chose mercy and compassion and a non-judgmental spirit today. And all I know is that I believe this is a pattern for you and me with the single parents around us today. And I beg you to be like Elijah. Years ago, when I was first doing a study on single parents after my first pastor in Detroit, I was in London, Ontario, and my first senior pastor, it's about 12 years ago, and I was preparing for a study on single parents, and the Vanier Institute of Family is very prominent in Canada and does a lot of research on the family. It's not a Christian organization, but they're great at culture watching. And in an article I read at that time, it kind of clobbered me over the head. It made the point in the introduction that in Western culture, America and in Canada, we tend to have four classifications of single parents. And we grade them on an increasingly downgraded level. We have at the upper end widows, then those who are separated, then those who are divorced, and then those who are out of wedlock single parents. And we tend to judge them in a great, kind of a gradiated category uh, from top to bottom. Listen to what they say. They're not making a judgment. They're just pointing this out. They say the most readily accepted lone parent is the widow or widower, widower who is perceived as being in the predicament not of his or her own making. Ranked below the widow is the lone mother who is separated from her husband. She is seen to be in a tentative position since she may reunite with her former spouse, thereby returning her family to two-parent status. Next comes the lone mother who is divorced from the father of her child. On the lowest rung of public acceptance is the never married lone mother who got caught or who chose to have a child outside of marriage. When I read that 12 years ago, you know what I thought to myself? I thought, I wonder if Jesus would use these four categories if he was here today. I thought, I wonder if Elijah had these four categories in his mind when he was with the widow and thought to himself, oh, good, it's a widow. I guess it's kind of on the upper end of the grace scale. I don't think so. I don't think Elijah would have fallen into these categories. I don't think that Jesus would have ever fallen into these categories. In fact, if he did, then the people that he dealt with, like the woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well, transcended even all of these. And yet he showed tremendous grace to them. And here's my challenge to you, church. Why in the world can't we do the same? Why in the world is the church the only army that shoots its own wounded? Why in the world is the church the ones who tend to be the most judgmental? towards those who are the most hurting? Why do we reserve our judgment for those who already know that they're in trouble and need help? Why is it that we can't be more like Jesus and more like Elijah? Unless you think this is just me spouting off some 
words about the single parent. I read an article a few years back on a church in Naples that had really reached out to single moms. And in that little town in Naples there in Florida, you know, their little newspaper, the, they highlighted this church that had reached out to single moms and how successful they were. And then on page three, it cited this, and I quote, it says, but the majority of single parents never find a home church, and they're among the few that will ever attend church services. According to a recent survey, only 5% of single parents go to church regularly. Most of them leave the church because their needs are not met. Does that break your heart? It breaks mine. It actually shocked me. I don't get shocked very often, but I was like, you're kidding. The, the, the church is that bad at reaching out to, to people like single moms and dads who are, who are so obviously in need and so prevalent in our culture today? I was shocked by that. One of the things I'm proud of in the history of Scottsdale Bible Church, and I don't say this to brag, I just say this to encourage us in this, you could hear a pin drop moment. I uh, hope it's like that over in 1110 too, because this is important stuff. It is that in our church, we actually have a wonderful history of reaching out to single moms and dads within our congregation, even without. In fact, in your bulletin, you will notice an insert there today, not my notes insert, but another one, which on both front and back, we list all of our ministries, and these are successful meeting every week ministries that right now exist to single moms and single dads. And I would just encourage all of us to continue to champion these ministries, to champion our own personal ministry in our own lives, and to stop judging. And to realize that if God asks anything from us, now don't miss this, that when we enter into the life of a single parent, he asks us to enter in with the foot of grace. That's what he asks us to do. As we're going to see in a minute, truth will play into it, obedience will play into it, helping people grow will play into it. All of those things play into it. Christianity is an amazing thing. But he asks us to enter in with the foot of grace. That's exactly what Jesus did. It was his M.O. with people, and it's to be ours the same. It's what Elijah did, and I'm telling you, it works. The first thing, the first way we apply grace is not to judge. And then very quickly, what we do secondly and thirdly is that secondly, we then become an agent of healing. We become an agent of healing. Again, I'm not going to read it for you because we read it earlier, but in verses 20 to 23, we see Elijah becoming an agent of healing as he brings this, through prayer, brings his son back to life. And yet what I need you to see more than anything else is it wasn't that Elijah was anything special, though he was a prophet. Uh, what was most special is that he prayed, don't miss that, he prayed three times over this dead boy that he would come back to life. And God, who is the real hero here, decided to perform a miracle and revive the son. But it was in response to Elijah's prayers. Do you see that there? So if there's anything that we're being called to hear in the life of a single parent is to pray. And so my question is simply for this. When you have a single parent in your life, and we all do, have you ever asked them what they need prayer for and that you've committed to praying for it until you've seen it through? That's what Elijah did. He prayed for it until he saw it through. He prayed once and then twice and then three times. And you got to believe the first time he prayed, nothing. Second time he prayed, nothing. Third time he prayed, there's my answer. And though many of us might not have the experience of bringing somebody back from the dead, the reality is we do see God move powerfully in our lives, so why not bring that to bear in the lives of single parents around us? Amen? Let me give another run at that. Why not bring that to bear in the life of single parents around us? Amen? Amen. Because that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to pray regularly, to be an agent of healing in their lives. And what better way to, be he to be bring healing than to pray regularly for them? 
So if nothing else comes out of this message, you know what I hope comes out of it? That 5,000 people that call Scottsdale Bible Church their home begin praying regularly for a single parent in their life. Wouldn't that just be so cool? If we would start praying things through in their lives, being an agent of healing. But it doesn't stop there. Lastly, we also become an agent of help. We become an agent of help. And again, some of you biblicists are saying, well, where's that in the text? Glad you asked. Let me show you. One of the questions that people don't ask very often about this text is what did Elijah do after this event? In other words, dial into this. Uh, we know that Elijah spent at least a year, probably two years, because that's the context of the story and how long the famine lasted from where we are at this point, with this widow and her son. And so the question becomes, what did Elijah do for the next year or two? Let me give you one of two choices. Do you think he sat around watching TV waiting for her to make the next cake? Do you think that's what he did? Kind of like some men do around. Come on, lady, make the next cake. I'm getting hungry. God's providing. It's my reason he's, you know, I'm the one who made him provide here. Do you think he sat around doing that? I don't think he did. No, no, I, I picture Elijah gathering sticks and making fires and fixing a roof and tending to animals if they ever got any, helping the sun, learning, helping the sun grow up to be a man. In other words, I see Elijah very involved in the life of this widow and her son being an agent of help. And that's the point, is that we all know the needs are endless in single-parent families. Child care needs, automobile fixing, appliance repair, home repair, grocery help, financial assistance. I mean, the list is endless. One of the things I learned in my first pastorate is that you can't go too overboard in helping a single mom. Kim, I don't know if you remember the day that, that, that Christmas that our mini church wanted to do something special for mini church, a small group, something special for Christine. And, and so Pete, one of the guys in our mini church who was from Gross Point, said, you know what? I think we ought to buy her a car. And I'm thinking, I think you ought to buy me a car. What are you talking about? I'm like, <laughs> buy her a car? Like, don't you think that'd be kind of a big gift? And, and he made a strong point. He said, you know, her car's about ready to fall apart, and, and she's got this pie-baking business going on a business. She needs a car. And he said, I'd give her my old car, but it's an Audi. And figures, gross point rich, Audi, you know. And he says it's got about 180,000 miles on it. I just don't think she could afford the repair bill. So we need to buy her something that, that would be used but very reliable. And so every one of us where we're at in our particular, you know, economic spheres chipped in. We bought her a really nice car for Christmas that year. She was so blown away with that that she wouldn't come back to mini church for two months. After about two months, I finally called her in February. I said, Christine, what gives you? I haven't been in miniature. She started to weep. She said, I just can't face you guys anymore. I've never received a gift like that in my life. And I was like, well, well, don't avoid us. I was like, we love you. We want to be with you. And so she started to come back. I, I dream about what happened if a church would start to respond to single parents like that, to be agents of help, not just healing and, and not just of not judging, but help in such a way that would really make a dent, that would make a difference. Because you see, here's what happens at the end of the day. One last verse. Look at verse 24, how this wraps up, and I want to show you something really cool. It says, And the woman said to Elijah, after he was an agent of help, after he was an agent of healing, after he didn't judge, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth, here it is, is truth. Some of you got mad at me when you found out we were doing a series on grace, which is like your problem, but they found out when doing a series on grace that uh, you got mad at me because you said, well, what about truth? You know, grace and truth go together. Why isn't this a series on grace and truth? And my answer was simply this, because when you lead with the foot of grace, when you truly get God's grace and then pour it on other people, I promise you it will lead to his truth because that's the way God is. You can't understand his grace without eventually being involved in his truth. And that's what we see happening here. 
that as Elijah showed this woman grace, as she received his grace, she got in touch with the truth of who God is. Do you see that there? Isn't that so cool? And that's what can happen in our lives as we pour into single parents. I want to close our service in kind of a unique way, but I think it'll be a fun way. Uh, John, are you at the booth there, back there? Yep, raise your hand, good. Could you make this hot? Um, for those of you who are not technical, that means a live mic. And so uh, John is going to make this a live mic. And uh, as many of you know, I came here three and a half years ago from another church in Cleveland, about uh, first where I was at for six years at my home church that was involved in helping me grow as a young Christian. And anytime you're involved in a church, you meet people that just blow you away. And one of the guys that I got really close to in Cleveland there was a guy by the name of Dick. And, and Dick, I met one of the first days that I was there, and this guy who stands about a foot and a half taller than me and uh, is just one of the most godly men that I know. I mean, he went to every funeral that our church ever had. When I'd go for a troubled marriage, he would usually beat me there. And yet he wasn't on staff at our church. He ran his own company in Solon, Ohio, still does to this day. But he is just so sold out for Christ, so sold out for the hurting that he was just totally in with Christ and with our church. And wouldn't you know he's visiting Phoenix here this week. And so I got a couple days to spend with Dick. And Dick, I want you to come up right now and I want you to close our service in prayer. Would you do that for us? And I want you guys to welcome up here Mr. Dick Thompson. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to see Jamie here in this church with you people. He was a tremendous loss to me. As you can see, we're twins. <laughs> we both have our rings on. And we're both happily married, praise God. And uh, we saw Jamie grow in our church. And when he got called here, it was as hard for us to let him go as it was for him to come. Mm. But what a blessing to have a man that follows God. Amen. And what he says is true. Christ in us is our only hope of glory. Amen. There's nothing else we have to offer. So I want to close on that note. Heavenly Father, we just lift up this church. We lift up every soul in it, the married, the single, the hurting, the alone, the jobless, the wealthy, the poor. If we live our lives unencumbered, Lord God, before you, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come to your throne broken and come out the other side alive. The foot of your cross, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. All right. Love you.